Good to see everyone this morning. It's been a good week of, of being able to be together with family and, and friends, and it's, I think, very fitting that we kind of cap that week off with being with the family of God and spending a little bit more time together worshiping our God and learning from His Word, trying to make applications as best we can as we do read from it. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning and this evening. I will just, I think warn isn't the right word, but I'll just let you know what the plans are. This is going to be a a kind of a, a connected sermon to tonight's sermon because it has to do with one overall question. And it's one of the most important and I think one of the most considered questions in the religious world today, whether you're talking about the Lord's Church or those who, who would just claim to be Christians but are, are, are not actually a part of the Lord's Church. And that is the question of how does God make sinners righteous? This is going to be our main focus for the entire day. And it, it's, you know, we're not going to be talking about you know, just one thing in particular. We're going to be talking about what, what, how does God make sinners righteous? What does the Bible say? And compare that to some things that others tend to say from time to time. Uh, and, and so it would be, it's, it's helpful to have this answer in place. And I mean firmly in place. So that way when others come in and try to give their own answers, answers that are not found in the scriptures, but rather just based on their own wisdom, we need to have the answer firmly rooted in our minds because our salvation is based on this answer that we are to be justified by Christ. And let me just say, as we're going to make note of throughout uh, this study, both this morning and this evening, there are ways that people try to justify themselves without being justified by Christ. And they may say, but, but look at what I'm saying. I'm, bringing, I'm trying to bring Jesus into this. The problem is they're trying to connect Jesus with, to something that we do not find in scriptures. And so let's try to answer this question of how does Jesus justify uh, those who come to him? And so uh, as we begin with this, the answer is so simple. We, we are justified by God's grace. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. 1 Peter 5 and verse 12. At the end of this epistle, Peter says through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We must stand firm in the true grace of God. Because without God's grace, we are lost, we are hopeless, we are indebted beyond all repair. And why? Because we have all sinned. And what is sin? But it is breaking God's law. That, that's the definition. It is a transgression against God's law. It is breaking his commandments. And once we have broken his commandments, now we're in a bit of a problem, aren't we? Because now we're in a place where God says, if you break my commandments, you can't be in heaven with me. You can't be in a right relationship with me. And so something must, must happen. And it is with God's grace that we are able to get out of that lost condition, that hopeless condition. It is by God's grace that that debt can be paid in full. Now, without God's grace, we cannot be saved. That is so evidently clear. In fact, you go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> very quickly. Uh, this is a very familiar passage. But in Ephesians chapter 2. 
As we think about how God justifies sinners, how he makes sinners righteous. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so it is by God's grace through faith that we are justified. This is, this is what we mean by justification, the process by which sinners are made righteous by God's grace through faith. In fact, this, is the, this word justified, we're going to be looking at it a lot. Over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, this is the notion that Paul tries to, to make clear over and over again throughout Romans. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So you see how all this connects together. We are justified because of God's grace that he was willing to send his son and provide an opportunity that we would, uh, uh, that we would choose to follow after him. This is the only way that sinners can be saved. Through God's justifications, justification, not our own, not man's. And the reason that I, that I emphasize that point is because time and time again, since the first century all the way to today, there have been many who distort that grace that we must have to be saved. Remember, without God's grace, there is no salvation. And I think everyone in this room would agree with that. But there have been many, and we're going to look at just a few examples here. If you want to turn over to Jude 3, Jude beginning in verse 3, that's right before Revelation there have been many who have come in and started talking about God's grace, preaching about God's grace, but ultimately they're not saying the same things that God has. Look at one example in Jude verse 3. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. <clears throat> for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this cond condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. On one hand, what you have is the severity of distorting God's grace. What does he say at the very end of verse 4? That they, these people, what they have done with God's grace, distorting it, it denies our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Unless you have the same understanding that Jesus has. Unless you have the same understanding that God has, what you're ultimately doing is denying Christ. But we're going to come back to that notion, so just keep that in your mind. But one of the things that he says is that they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That is the notion of, of having no moral restraint. And, and so they, they use this in such a way as to propagate themselves or help their own situations. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, another circumstance here. 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 16, <clears throat> it says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. What does he mean when he talks about free men? Free men, those who have been liberated, freed from the bondage of sin, from that slavery of sin. And we have that language time and time again throughout the scriptures. But what Peter has to unfortunately bring up is that people are coming in and they're using that freedom ultimately as a covering for evil. And I think that there's a very strong connection that we could make to Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 2, which you might just put a bookmark there because we're going to come back to it uh, a few times both this morning and this evening. But that notion that people are trying to abuse God's grace, 
How do they do that? Let's sin so that grace may abound. But Paul says, may it never be. Why? Because people are distorting God's grace. Yes, God's grace will cover all of my sins. But people will come in and say, all right, then we can abuse that. If God's grace is that powerful, then it should be powerful enough to take care of me even though I'm going to continue in sin. That's, that's a serious problem. That is someone who's coming in, distorting God's grace and abusing it. Now, do people still do this today? I think they do. How are, what are some ways that people do this? I want to look at specifically one I think is the most predominant way that people do this in our, our modern culture. And that is how they distort God's grace. It comes in the view of uh, Calvinism. And you might have heard this before, you may not have, but it is the notion that Christ's perfect, righteous life is imputed to believers. Now, there's a lot of big words here that are used, and I think sometimes just to maybe confuse. And, and, and for instance, I'm, I want to I try and define this a little bit more. From a Calvinist's perspective, a man named by... Uh, or that, is uh, named John Piper. He's a very famous uh, denominational preacher. And he wrote a book called Counted as Righteous. And as I was just trying to understand what, what would a Calvinist say about this notion of the imputation of Christ's perfect and righteous life to the believer. What does that mean? And this is what he said. It's, it's really kind of at the beginning of the book, a little bit in, but it's very much at the beginning of the book. He says, by imputation, I am referring to the act in which God counts sinners to be righteousness through the, their faith in Christ on the basis of Christ's perfect blood and righteousness. Specifically, the righteousness of Christ accomplished by his perfect obedience in life and death. Now, does that sound reasonable? At first glance, or at first hearing, it might seem Okay, I, I, th I think I understand that. Maybe I don't, but I, I, I'm not sure if there's anything that I can really point out specifically and make issue with. And, and let me just say, I think, that is, I think that's the main danger. A lot of times when you go to, to people to try to get this understanding, just to understand what they would say about this, what happens is they're very wordy and they use very big words like academic sounding words to make it sound very researched so that way when we read those definitions oh I don't have to go and do any research myself because it, it already sounds like they've done that work and we need to make sure that we don't allow anybody to keep us from looking into what the scriptures what God has said about these notions about righteousness and about justification we need to make sure that we are not just taking things in because people are defining things in such a way that makes it easier to swallow. We need to look at what they're really saying. And I want to try to do that uh, this morning. As we, because, I, frankly, when I read through that explanation and that definition, it still didn't make a lot of sense to me. I know ultimately what he's trying to get at. But I think, to a degree, there's, there's a bit of... Um, because of those academic sounding words and being very lengthy in, in, in you know, how many words he uses, I think that he's not being as direct as he could be. And so what I want to do for the next couple moments is I'm going to put two illustrations up to try and explain what this, what this false doctrine of the imputation of Christ's perfect and righteous life to believers is. And, and this is going to be done in a few different ways. So for instance, what you start with is the sinner. You have the man who's broken God's law and therefore, he is in debt. He is hopeless. He's lost without God. And so, what this notion of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is, is it's almost, you kind of look at it like an umbrella. And so, there really isn't any change in the sinner. There's been no transformation whatsoever, and that's important. Keep that in mind. 
But this, this righteousness of Christ is being used almost as an umbrella to kind of keep God from seeing that this person is still just a broken sinner. That there has been no change whatsoever. Now, a little bit more explanation. What this means is, for the sinner who has broken God's law and is in need of God's justification, what this means is when God looks at the sinner, he doesn't actually view that person's sins. He doesn't actually view that person's life. He doesn't view whether or not they have obeyed or disobeyed. Isn't that interesting? Because the Bible says quite a bit about obedience to God. But he doesn't view any of that. He doesn't really care about any of that because all he can see is Christ. He can't see the individual. And again, we're going we're gonna to explain this a little bit more. So don't, don't get worried if you, if you can't uh, follow this. Even, I mean, I'm, I'm, sometimes I have a trouble following this because, frankly, you don't find it in the scriptures. This is man's wisdom here. So there, there will be no change in his behavior. There's no change in his actions, his mindset. When in Romans chapter 12, I thought Paul said that we have to be transformed in our mind. But here, that's, that's, that's not an issue because God's not really going to see the, the sinner. He's justified though sin remains in him. So what does that mean about this umbrella, this notion that Christ's righteousness is going to block this man from actually being seen and his sins from being seen? What this means is Christ's perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect works to God, it covers the sinner so that God can only see Christ. He doesn't see the sinner at all. Whenever he looks in our direction, Jesus is completely blocking us. And what this means is that Christ's righteousness umbrellas the sinner's uh, life, even though there has been no change and no real um, act of obedience. And so this, I think, is at least somewhat of a decent illustration to describe what this false view of God's grace and justification is. There's one more illustration that I want to use. But uh, let me just say, I don't think any of this is unfair because there have been several prominent men who have wrote about these things and spoken about these things, preached about these things in public. In fact, there's a man by the name of R.C. Sproul who wrote a book called Faith Alone. It's interesting that he doesn't really seem to deal with the only time that that uh, terminology is used in the Bible and James do, but we won't even go into that. But in this book, what he ends up saying about this imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer, this is actually what he says. We are just by imputation even while sin remains. Let me ask you something. Because you are a good Bible student, can you be justified? Can you be in a relationship with God while sin remains? We know better because we've read the Bible. Another illustration. Again, you start with the sinner. And this is a man who decides he's not going to give up on a sin. He is completely unchanged, even though he's read through the gospel where it talks about repentance. You need to take that sin away from your life. You need to root it out of your life. He's just obstinate and disobedient. He's a man that has not given up his sins. Now, let me ask if this makes sense, because this is the notion of, of, of justification by, by imputation. You have God come up to this man and essentially say, you have done as I have asked. You are justified. When you look at this picture, is that scriptural? Is that biblical? Every single one of us, I think, would look at this picture and say, that is wrong. That is false. And you'd be right. It is. It's completely unbiblical. Now, what this false view, what this doctrine, this false doctrine would say is that even though this is the case, God really is not going to care about the sinner who has not done anything to change his life to obey God. But what, because all he's going to see is Christ stepping in front of him. And what's interesting about this is... <laughs> 
really nothing has changed. This is the same picture as we just saw. The man is not going to be held accountable for anything that he has done, even though he hasn't shown any remorse whatsoever. But you have, I, I, I mean, honestly, can this possibly be correct? The notion that the sinner, after not, not doing anything that God expects of him, that God is not going to address that fact, that he is essentially distracted by his son. What do we know about God? He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. God knows everything. And yet what this doctrine would espouse is that, or, or rather proclaim, is that God is distracted by his son. God knows all. And this means that sin is not really dealt with. I'll just quote another uh, writer by the name of James White. Now, he's one of the few, I would say, classic Calvinists. I will say a couple weeks ago, Danny uh, McKibben preached a little bit about this, about uh, the, those five points, that tulip, and that is really classic Calvinism. And he was right. There's not a lot of people that take every single step, but there are lots of people who will take some steps. And, and I would just hearken you back to one thing that Danny said. I, I think that if you take some and not others, if you don't take the whole thing together, it all falls apart. I think that this doctrine of Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer, I think this is kind of the glue that holds it all together. And this is one of the main reasons that we're looking at this. But James White, who's a classic Calvinist, as he's writing about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the believer, he says it produces no change in the individual to whom the imputation is made. It simply alters his relation to the law. Now, is it true that when we are justified, there is a change in how God uses us? Yes. But it's not that there is a change even though we have not done anything. That God is going to justify us even though we have not repented. Even though we have not decided we're going to be faithful. Not just believe that he exists, but truly be loyal and devoted to everything that he says. Now, I will just say, there are no passages for this point because nowhere in the Bible is there ever the notion that God's divine righteousness is transferred over to the believer. And that's just a fact. And, and, and so what I want to do is, is focus a little bit more on this doctrine because I think it's helpful to understand what uh, proponents of this doctrine would say. And first of all, as we look at this, just in addition, there are three overall imputations that, that uh, they would say uh, come along with this doctrine that must go together, I would say, if it all falls apart. And it starts with Adam. So you have Adam's sin and the consequences of his sin. You have Adam's sin really being inherited throughout all of his descendants. Every single one of us are, are guilty for Adam's sin. So that his sin is transferred over to man. And then secondly, you have man's sin transferred over to Jesus. And, and we're going to talk more about this, but I'm just giving you uh, very quickly what, what they would say. And so you have Adam's sin transferred to man, man's sin, all of mankind's sin transferred over to Jesus on the cross. And then you have finally Jesus's righteousness transferred over to man. Let me just say that word transferred is a poor definition of the word impute. And we'll talk about this more in just a moment. But this is what they would say, that this is what imputation means, that it's a transfer. It is not. But let me just ask, when looking at this, what does this really mean? Very quickly, I would just like to translate this for you. What this means is ultimately, you are guilty for Adam's sin. Jesus, our perfect Lord and Savior, is guilty for your sin. Not he bore the punishment of our sin. He is guilty 
for my sin. Does that sound right? And finally, as we've been talking about, we are responsible for Christ's righteousness. That's really what this imputation means, that when that righteousness is transferred over to me, now, really, just like Jesus is responsible for my sins, now I'm responsible for Jesus' life. Is anybody bold enough to raise their hand and say, they think that? That I'm responsible for every good thing Jesus did? But I'm telling you, this is the consequences of this doctrine. And this is a serious problem. And again, this is not an unfair argument. In fact, I'm going to show you another chart very quickly. This is from another man who would would espouse this this same doctrine as he talks about justification. He doesn't use the the word impute or transfer. He uses what we actually find in Romans chapter 4. But look at this. It says, when Jesus is on the cross... This is the moment where God's righteousness is credited to the believer and our sin is credited to Christ. And so what really they're saying is it's transferred over to the believer, God's righteousness, and our sin is transferred over to Christ. Just what we've been saying a moment ago, that we are responsible for his perfection, that he is responsible for our corruption. That is what this is saying. And even though in this chart he's actually using the correct verbiage, that's not what they mean. And I would just say, even if they used this definitionally, even if they used this accurately, there is not one, not one passage that talks about uh, God's righteousness or the righteousness of Christ being uh, put on the believer in any sense. Are we supposed to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect? Yes. Are we supposed to be righteous as he is righteous? Are we supposed to be following after his footsteps? Yes. But it never, ever speaks about the notion that his righteousness is now mine, that, that, that I am actually liter- literally uh, responsible and, and uh, uh, that I'm actually responsible for that righteousness. And, and we're going to look more into this, but just understand, this is not an unfair argument. Many, many, many have said these exact things. And uh, so I want to look at this word. When you look at the word impute, it, you will find this in Romans chapter 5 when Paul says that where there is no law, sin is not imputed. And so this is the word that they would use and, and that I think we should use biblically. But the problem is that there has been an incorrect de- defining of this word because what they have said is that it means transfer. As we've already indicated, that is not what the word means. In fact, I want to give you another quote. It's a man by the name of Albert Barnes, and you've probably heard his name because he wrote many commentaries throughout uh, the books of the Bible. And when he gets to Romans, this is very interesting what he says, and I will just give you a little bit of background. He was a Calvinist. This man was a Presbyterian, but he really argued against what most of his colleagues would say about this word. And so, very quickly, as he writes about Romans, look at what he says. I have examined all the passages, and as the result of my examination, have come to the conclusion that there is not one in which the word is used in the sense of reckoning or imputing to a man that which does not strictly belong to him, or of charging on him that which ought not to be charged on him as a matter of personal right. Now, get this. The word is never used to denote imputing in the sense of transferring or of charging that on one which does not properly belong to him. The same is the case in the New Testament. And then uh, he, he says, no doctrine of transferring or of setting over to a man what does not properly belong to him, be it sin or holiness, can be derived, therefore, from this word. Whatever is meant by it here, it evidently is declared that the act of believing is that which is intended both by Moses and Paul. And so every time this word is used from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's the same. 
and even a man who is not a member of the Lord's church and going against the, the majority of his colleagues, he says, this, this is the truth here. And I, I don't, I'm sure I don't agree with everything that Barnes has said over, the, uh, you know, over his uh, career, but I will say, in this instance, he was right. This notion of imputation, it is not the sense of transferring. And therefore, if that is the case, then what God is saying when he uses this word, it is not that Christ's righteousness is transferred to the believer, so I'm responsible for that righteousness. It's not that our sin, my sin, is transferred over to Christ, that he is responsible for it. And we need, to be, we need to be ready to make those points. We need to be ready to stand firm in the true grace of God so that people don't come in and distort it in that way. Look at Romans chapter 4. Because when you look at Romans chapter 4, what we just read uh, about this word that Barnes was writing about, he seems to agree with Paul. Because in verse 19, beginning of Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, it says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification or to result in our justification. Because without him raising from the dead, without that powerful evidence that he was truly the son of God, the person that he claimed to be, without that, there is no justification because he wouldn't be the son of God that was able to take away sins. But because of that evidence, we can have that justification that Paul begins talking about even more so in Romans chapter five and verse one and onward. Now, thinking about Abraham there, his example, why was he credited as righteous by God? Was it because it was transferred to him? No, it was because of obedient faith. And when you look at the example of Abraham, and every time Paul uses that example, he always brings him up mentioning the fact that Abraham's faith does not look like most of the Jews' faith at this point. Because they look at faith almost like James talks about it. It's a dead faith. It's a faith that they say, well, of course I believe in God. I know I'm a descendant of Abraham, and that's enough to justify me. And what James and Paul would agree with is, no, it's not. You want to be a son of Abraham? As Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, which is kind of a sister epistle to Romans, he would say, you must put Christ on if you want to be a son of Abraham. That's how you actually show true faith. And so we need to come to the words that the Holy Spirit uses and we need to, to not bring our own wisdom into this. We need to not bring the world's wisdom into this. We need to see what God actually meant. Now, what I've tried to do for the last few moments is just describe to you what I think is the most, one of the most prominent distortions of God's grace that we have to de deal with today. And, and, and there are probably other ways, there are definitely other ways that people do this, but this is one of the main ones. And so we need to understand it so that way we can know how people are coming about this discussion. But you may still look at this and think, why does this matter? In fact, I've had conversations with brethren about this exact thing. And what ends up happening is people say, honestly, listen, no one else really believes that. I mean, yeah, he believes in some wackadoodle ideas. 
Yes, he believes in, in, in some silly little notions, but, you know, who cares? Just let him be silly. It, it's, so much, it's so much more significant than that. This is not just a brother or a sister just saying silly little things. We just need to look over it. This is not something that we can look over. Why? Because it is a false gospel. Distorting the grace of God as we began with is reason enough for this to matter. When someone comes in and says something other than what God has said about his grace and about how we are justified, I'm going to approach that topic with extreme caution and extreme prejudice, frankly, because they are coming at it from a different perspective than God is. Not me, God. That's distorting God's grace, and, and we cannot have that. In fact, Paul would write so severely to the Galatians. Why? Because they so quickly had abandoned the true gospel for another gospel. And he says, but it really wasn't another gospel. And this is the problem today. People think, well, it looks close enough. It can't just look close enough. There are all kinds of doctrines that, have, that you know, bring Christ into it. But just because they say, hey, Christ is connected to this, Christ is a part of this, that doesn't mean that it is Christ's word and law and doctrine. That's why this matters. And so this is reason enough. We don't even have to move on. We will, but this is reason enough. And so no one, not one person can say, oh, that doesn't matter. It matters. But not only this, but this false doctrine brings with it the corruption of our perfect Savior, as we kind of talked about earlier. In Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, all throughout Hebrews, the writer is just making clear that Jesus is better, that Jesus was that perfect high priest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, that he can sympathize with us. He is that perfect high priest who can come before God. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Over and over again, the Hebrew writer says, he was that perfect sacrifice. In the next chapter, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the spotless, unblemished sacrifice. It means he was without sin. That's the sacrifice. That a man who was innocent, pure, guiltless, died. And one of the main passages that people would use to make this point is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll, we'll think about this even more tonight, but very quickly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the texts that they would use uh, predominantly. It says in verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now what ends up happening is people will say, Okay, look at what this says. Christ became sin. Again, I would really, really push back and, and ask, do you really think that Christ became sin? I don't even know what that means. How do you literally, you know, how do you literally become sin? How do you literally become righteous or righteousness? And so we need to push back and say, do you really think that Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, became sin, became blemished? 
No, that's not the case. If that's the case, then that means he's not the perfect spotless sacrifice. If that's the case, he is no longer innocent. He's no longer pure. His death means nothing. That's what that means. But I would just, I would just say, when you look at how this word is used, especially in the Old Testament, you know where it comes up when it talks about sin offerings. And doesn't that make sense? That when Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, what he's saying is he made him to be a sin offering on our behalf. That's the way this word is used, even in the Old Testament. And yet what people want to do is they say, okay, well, you know what? We just live under the New Testament. We need to break that off and we just can't even look at the rest of God's word. All of it connects. None of it contradicts. And if people end up saying, well, no, that's not what we're going to say. He literally became sin. What they're doing is completely rejecting the rest of what God has said. And not only that, but they are implying that Jesus is guilty and corrupt. Again, please raise your hand if you think Jesus is a sinner. Not one person. And that's good because true Bible students, we know better. But this is what people will come in and say so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this notion time and time again is that fact that we are going to repent of the things that he's actually be obedient. Not just obstinate say I'm not willing to give anything up. But we are going to repent of those things that he says are unrighteous that do sully you, that do soil you, and do dirty you. But you're going to put all of those things away and you're going to look, imitate that perfect Savior. And so we need to understand what, what kind of things people are saying and what the implications are. Because a lot of times people will bring things up and act like they don't have to deal with the inevitable conclusion of what they're saying. This is the inevitable conclusion. And we need to push on that. People don't want to say, well, we, well, let's just think about that later. No, let's think about it now. Because you have ruined that perfect sacrifice that we had. Ruined it and corrupted our perfect Savior. And I will just add, again, it's not an unfair argument because in the same book that we quoted from earlier by R.C. Sproul, Faith Alone, he would end up saying once more that God declares Jesus guilty. That man is a lot more bold than I am because he is saying something that you do not find in Scripture. Jesus was not guilty. He was innocent. That is why he was our perfect sacrifice. But that is the inevitable conclusion of believing this false gospel. Another reason why this matters is because I think more and more brethren are using these terms not realizing what they fully mean or what they do. I was listening to a, a, a preacher talk about Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And after he was reading through that, one of the things he said was something that sounds a lot like this. He said, there is none righteous. You're not righteous either. Do you think that because you've done a few things right that you're righteous because you're not? And he was speaking to Christians. Does the Bible ever indicate that Christians are continually unrighteous? That Christians are continually sinful? May it never be, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. 1 John chapter 1, how can you be in fellowship with the Father if you continue to walk in darkness? It's impossible. But that's what people are claiming, that it's okay. But this is something that a, that a gospel preacher has said, not just some random person, a brother in Christ. I'll give you another example from another brother. As he was talking about the righteousness of God, he says, I want his righteousness. I want his imputed is the word we use. I want his goodness laid upon me. It's the same language of this doctrine. God wants us and expects us to look like him because we are putting away all of the things of the world 
and putting as much on as we can in love and faith and truth. We need to be a part of that vine, not a part of just of any doctrine, any wind or wave that comes our way and, 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 and you know, causes us to go to and fro of the path. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we don't have enough time to go there, but I would encourage you to go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Read the entire chapter, but especially verses 20 through 24, because what God makes clear through the prophet Ezekiel is that God is not going to you know, judge the father for the sins of the son. And he is not going to punish the son for the sins of the father. But each man is going to die for the sins he has committed. That's what God says all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 18. But again, read that whole chapter. And you will see that God is not vague or unclear about this. You die for your sins. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, is God says each will be judged according to his deeds. He doesn't say you're going to be judged according to someone else's deeds. He doesn't say you're going to be uh, lost because of someone else's sins. Although that's what this doctrine would say about Jesus. Is that he's damned because he has become guilty of my sin. In Romans chapter 14, once more, he says that we will be accountable to God for my actions. My conscience. My deeds. Not anybody else's. I can't stand before God for my son. He's going to have to stand before God for his deeds. And I'm not going to be able to stand for anybody else. You're not going to be able to stand for anyone else that you wish would just obey God, but they never did in their lives. You're not going to be able to bring yourself and say, hey, look at me. No, every single one of us is going to be judged by our own deeds. Have you obeyed God or are you continuing to disobey? And finally, I would say it makes God look limited because God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. He knows all these things, and what this doctrine seems to, to make God look like is at best blind, at worst gullible. Do we really think that God can't see the sinner behind his son? Or do we really think that he is so vain that he is only going to, that he will, is so distracted by just the beauty and the glory of his son that he just, he's completely distracted. He, he can't even turn his attention away because that, that, that sinner's on. No, God is not blind to these things. Is he really going to be tricked by man's attempt to hide his sinfulness behind the perfect life of Christ? We have mentioned several passages that God says, you cannot hide from me. Each will be judged according to their deeds. And so the question is, what deeds are you doing? Are you doing righteous deeds that are, are stemmed from faithfulness to God? That you have learned by God's grace? Or are you continuing in rebellion, continuing in sin, thinking, you know what? Jesus' righteousness is what God's going to see anyway, so it doesn't matter. Christian, don't think if you have been taken in by this doctrine, this false gospel, that you can trick God into thinking that you are righteous when you don't care to be righteous. Don't think that you're going to trick God into thinking, you know what, I think he, he will go to heaven because all I see is Jesus anyway. When you've been continuing in the shadows in pornography, continuing in the shadows of alcohol, continuing in the shadows of maliciousness, God sees all and he knows all. You're not going to be able to trick. You're not going to be able to hide. When that light shines, everything's going to be exposed. And so come back to the true grace of God. 
That is the invitation for all, for the, for the one who has become a Christian but maybe has strayed from the path and for the one who has never become a Christian who wants to be a believer and be justified truly by Christ today. You can have that true grace, but it comes at the price of leaving behind man's wisdom and only taking God's. Nothing more, nothing less. Are you willing to obey him today? Are you willing to make the changes? Are you willing to be faithful and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life so that you can have not just a transfer, but true forgiveness? The sins are washed away. That is a more hopeful message than any false doctrine that we can hear. Do you want forgiveness this morning? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand, as we sing.